If you would, grab your uh, pew Bibles or the scriptures you brought with you and turn to uh, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 this morning. We're going to look at the first uh, 19 verses. Pastor James Boyce tells the story of two 18th century uh, lawyers, trained as, men trained as lawyers, uh, both of them uh, friends, both of them uh, shared a, um, a disapproval of, of Christianity, if you will. They, didn't, they were not believers, uh, and they were uh, growing in their um, disapproval, I guess you could say, so much so that they sat down to talk one day and they said, you know what, Let, we need to write some, some books about this. And they decide, you know what, if we could disprove uh, the resurrection, that would go a long way in disproving Christianity. Somebody else, and one of the others said, well, that's important, but if we could disprove uh, Paul's conversion, that would go a long way as well. And so they talk a little bit more and they decide, okay, one says, I'm going to write a book on disproving the resurrection. Another says, okay, I'm going to write the, the book on disproving Paul's conversion. And you think, well, okay, well, I get the resurrection part. That's probably maybe what you're thinking, but what about the Paul part? Well, in their minds, Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament, and uh, he was a pretty keen theologian and, and church builder. If we could disprove him or discredit him, this would go a long way to discredit Christianity. So they go and they work. Time goes by. And they get back together again. And they sit down and they talk and they share What's been going on? Updating each other on their work. And uh, one of them mentioned, you know what? I'm kind of being persuaded by some of the stuff I'm seeing. The other guy confesses, you know what? Me too. I'm seeing some stuff that's really pulling me towards Christianity and the truth of it. So they break apart. Conversation is getting too serious. And they go and they continue their work. Well, you know how the story ends. Okay, They get back together. They do these works. And they're convinced. Uh, they've moved from the into the from unbelief to belief in their examination and their research. One book they write is the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the other book is the Conversion of of Saint Paul. And usually these volumes come out uh, together. They're two separate books, but they're kind of small enough where they're bound together. And in some trans it's not translations, but in some uh, versions and some publications of it. On the uh, opening pages there, after you move past the title page, it says this. It says, blame not until you have examined the truth. Blame not until you've examined the truth. This morning I'm hoping to examine Paul's conversion, or at least one account, three accounts in the book of Acts of Paul's conversion. And as before we, we stand and we read this word together, let me, let me say this too. Sometimes I'm going to say Paul, and sometimes I'm going to say Saul, okay? And the Bible talks it as sometimes it's Saul before his conversion, and it's Paul after his conversion, okay? I'm just going to go back and forth, and it's just going to happen that way, and just to give you a warning on the front end, okay? Let's stand and let's read God's Word together. Acts chapter 19, uh, starting, excuse me, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that it was found any there who belonged to the way 
whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice to him, a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told that you, what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there, stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not, did not eat or drink anything. Verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight, Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he sent... Uh, he, he has, excuse me, in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on, his, on your name. But the Lord said, said to Ananias, go. This man is to be my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me, to, sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell, fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's pray to him. Father God, we hear this uh, dramatic uh, story of conversion and we pray in these moments that you would give us eyes to see your truth and that our hearts would be open uh, to learn from you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. It does seem pretty clear that this is a conversion story. It's Paul's conversion story, if you will. It's one of three in the book of Acts. And as I say that word conversion, maybe some of you are a little bit uncomfortable. Conversion? Is that important? Do I have to be converted? I mean, am I converted? I go to church. I live in the South. You know, is there more to it uh, than that? And the answer is yes. You, you do have to be converted to be a Christian. Uh, and Scripture is pretty clear on that. Uh, for example, in Matthew 18, it says, or Jesus says, Unless you change or are converted and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. It also talks about conversion as being born again. For example, in John 3, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So think about conversion like this. Convert is something that, that we do, so to speak. We, we trust and we obey. 
We apply faith to what we're hearing and understanding, what we're experiencing maybe. Being born again, that's something that, that God does. He brings about that, that rebirth, that type of conversion. And both those things speak to a, a changed life. And certainly we see that uh, in the Apostle Paul here. The second thing to, to think about as we think about uh, conversion, we look at Paul's story here and we think, is that how it's supposed to be? Is that how everybody's supposed to be converted? You know, you're going in one direction and the next thing you know, you're confronted with something and your life is completely different uh, afterwards. Well, yes and no. Uh, it, this is how Paul's converted, but it doesn't necessarily mean this is how everybody is to be converted or how everybody experiences Christianity, so to speak. Last week, we looked at a conversion story that was very different from Paul's. Uh, in chapter 10 of Acts, there's another conversion story. There are other accounts of, of men and women coming to faith, and each one of them looks different. Just because it happened to Paul like this doesn't mean necessarily that we should experience it as well. Some people's conversion is sudden. Uh, it's dramatic. Some people, their conversion is, is slower. Um, it, it, it's less dramatic. It's, um, it takes place over a period of time. Each conversion is different. Nonetheless, Paul's conversion does have many things, I think, uh, to teach us about the nature of being converted. What does it mean to be a follower, follower of, of Christ? And so this morning, I want us to think about three things that this passage teaches us about uh, conversion. Those three things are conversion meets us where we're at, conversion stops us in our tracks, and conversion gives us new relationships, okay? Meets us where we're at, stops us in our tracks, and gives us new relationships. So let's start with conversion meeting us where we're at. You think about uh, the state of mind of Paul or Saul here in this uh, passage. Luke, this is not the first instance of, of Paul here that we've seen up into this point in Acts. We've, Luke's mentioned him a, a couple times. For example, at the end of chapter 7, when Stephen was martyred, when he was killed, the first martyr that we see in the New Testament, it says, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. The beginning of chapter 8, it says concerning uh, Stephen's death, Saul was there giving approval to his death. Chapter 9, verse 1, we read this a moment ago, that Saul is still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And so in many ways, Paul is connected to this persecution, uh, and he's more specifically he's connected to the church scattering leaving Jerusalem and being forced to go to different places and different towns uh, to live to get away from this persecution. And, of course, Paul is, is moving after them to follow them uh, even more so. Also notice the language that Luke uses to describe Saul at this time. For example, in verse 3 of chapter 8, we're told that Saul is destroying or ravaging the church. Destroying or ravaging the church. This is the only time that Greek word is used. We don't see it used anywhere else in the New Testament. But when the Old Testament is translated into Greek, they use this word once in Psalm chapter 80, verse 13. 
to describe how boars are devastating a vineyard. And so I bring that up to give that, that picture of how destructive Saul is being here as we are introduced to him. Later on, in, at the end of chapter uh, 9, the Jews are, ex- are seeing that Saul's had this conversion experience and they're kind of scratching their heads about him. And they say, isn't this one who, who raised or caused havoc uh, to the church? Isn't this the one that was mauling the church, that was trying to destroy it and, and tear it down piece by piece? All that to say that, that Paul here is being met by God where he's at in the midst of his threatening and his desire to, to bring violence and destruction to the people. And you look at Paul and you think, there's no way. If you're a Christian at this time, I'm wondering, is, any, is the church really praying that, God, will you convert, convert Saul? Will you change him? After all, how many of us were praying for Osama bin Laden to be converted? Okay, We kind of look at him, this is a lost cause. It's not going to happen. But this is one of three uh, testimonies that we have of Paul's conversion in the book of Acts. Paul goes on to write much of the New Testament, as we noted a moment ago. God is able to change Men from dramatic situations in dramatic ways. And God meeting us where we're at is a picture of his sovereign grace in our lives. His sovereign grace applied to our circumstances, to all that we are. No matter where we're at, he's able to work. He's able to do. This past week I was talking to a gentleman, a pastor that lives in Myrtle Beach area. And we were just talking and and sharing, getting to know each one another. And at the end, he said, you know, hey, will you pray for um, my family? I was like, okay, pray for my brother's family. Uh, he passed away uh, a short time ago, and uh, his family's really struggling in light of this. And then he began to share a little bit more about his brother. And uh, he'd been struggling with health issues for a long period of time. And in that process, he'd become um, antagonistic towards Christianity not a believer, uh, didn't want anything to do with it, and uh, they were really concerned about him, you know, in light of uh, his illness. But as time went by, his attitude changed, and he began to be more interested, more curious, and over time he expressed and put his, put his faith in Christ, was, was looking to him, looking to, to God and his promises and his words uh, to be true uh, for him. And I know as, as, as he's sharing this story with me, he's seen on display in his own life God's ability to change people even when they're moving in the opposite direction. God is able to meet us where we're at. Paul's conversion here is a reminder to us as we think about people in our families, friends that we have, uh, maybe people that we've grown up with, and we wonder, could God change his life. Could God work in her heart? And Paul's conversion says, yes, he's able, if he could change somebody like Paul, uh, certainly he could change anybody else that we know. Or maybe there you're sitting there thinking, it's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not really worried about uh, friends of mine and how likely it is that they'll um, engage with Christ, but I'm worried about my own heart. I know my own issues. The things that I've done, could God change me? 
could God help me? I mean, I've, I've got some, some shameful things that I'm not proud of. Is he able to change me? Is he able to work in my life as well? And Paul's conversion, I think, speaks to us. God is a God of sovereign grace, and he can change no matter who you are or where you've been. The second thing I think we learn about uh, conversion is that conversion stops us in our tracks. Stops us in our tracks. Imagine you've been living your whole life, and you've believed one certain thing because you've been taught it. It's been uh, held out as an example to you. And then a day comes, and you find out that's not really true at all. The thing that you've been believing in, trusting in, assuming to be the case your whole life, you find out that's not true at all. And how much of a tailspin that would throw your life into. You'd be confused. Everything would be off balance for you. In a sense, that's what's happening to Paul here. As he's been moving forward and following um, this persecution, persecuting these people. He's come under the realization, you know, everything I believed about God, everything I thought to be true about him, that's not true at all. Here's Paul with his, uh, the papers, the authority to go and arrest Christians in the city of Damascus, some 160 miles or so from Jerusalem, seven to eight, maybe nine days of travel, riding along probably closer to uh, Damascus and Jerusalem, blinded by this light thrown off his horse, and he hears this voice speaking to him. Verse 4, Saul, Saul, why, are you, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul's response is the million-dollar question for us, really. Who are you, Lord? That, that question that he asks. Because I think behind that question... Is Paul saying up until this point, he's believed one thing about God, and now he's confronted with Jesus, and everything else in light of that is thrown off. Because Paul has lived his life and he said, yeah, there's, there's no way God would become man and walk among us. There's no way if he did do that that he would say the sacrifices of the Old Testament are gone. And there's no way if God became man that he would die as a criminal on a cross. And yet... Paul is confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. And everything he thought he believed and understood about God is being found out to him to be wrong. He hasn't been right. It hasn't been true at all. Everything he believed in is being turned upside down. And I think for us to see there's a difference between having an opinion about God about this is who I think he is, this is who I believe him to be, and the reality of who God is in our midst. I'd imagine here that not many of us are, are trained and have the background that Paul does, and we don't share his opinions about the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament. But I bet if we talk to our friends, we talk to our neighbors, we talk to people uh, not belonging to the church necessarily, we ask him, do you believe in God and what is he like? Most people would say, if they believe in God, I say, yes, I believe there's a God. I believe that he's, he's good. He's, he's really nice. Uh, and I believe I'll go to heaven as long as I just don't do anything really 
stupid, anything that's really beyond uh, the bounds of imagination. And as long as I believe those things, or as long as I keep within those things, then I'll come and, and, and I'll see him and I'll know him. This is the God of somebody's opinion versus the God of reality, the God that's really there. And the problem with having a God of our opinions or the God that how we imagine him to be is he can't change you. Uh, he won't make a difference in your life. And this is why I say that. Think about it like this. Let's say you're, you're struggling with something. Uh, you're struggling with failure, struggling with insecurity, struggling with, with some kind of, of guilt in your life. Okay? And we sit down and we talk and you share what's, what's going on and why that is. And I say to you, well, do you believe in God? You say, yeah. I say, well, how's that? Is that helping you? You say, well, it's, it's not making a difference at all. In John chapter uh, 3, verse 20, it says, If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. Okay, well, how does that help? If your heart is saying to you, you're guilty, you're a failure, you're worthless, God comes to you and he says, you're wrong. (laughs) That's not who you are, and that's not how I see you. I'm God of, of hope and grace and power and transformation. You believe in me, then you'll see transformation. If you have this kind of God, there's going to be change in your life. There's the opportunity for change and for growth, for healing, for restoration, for real rest. But if we only have a God of our opinions, a God of this is how I imagine him to be, then there's going to be no real change. Because to see change and to have a God uh, that's going to bring that into your life, he has to be bigger than you. He has to be somebody that says, no, you're wrong. That says, no, you need to stop this. That says, you, yes, you need to believe this. This is what's really true. This is what's real reality. And Paul's being confronted with this. Everything he held about God is being turned upside down. And change is coming into his life. Because there's a God greater than our opinions of him. And he's able to bring new reality, new truth into us. Last point, back to the story. Uh, Conversion gives us new relationships. Last part of these passages, we see two, I think, relationships uh, emerging more more vividly, more in more color. Uh, Verse 11, uh, we see that Paul's new relationship is with, with God which is not a a surprise, but let me nuance it with with this. Uh, Verse 11, Ananias is told, go to Saul. He's he's at Straight Street. Uh, He's with Judas, uh, and he's there praying. And we read that and think, okay, that's that's good. He's been confronted by God, and he's praying. You would kind of expect that. And, And I think Luke is... It's significant that Luke says to us, the first thing we hear about Paul doing post-conversion is, is praying. We don't know what he's praying for, but you can imagine what he is praying for. God, forgive me for what I've been doing and what I've been saying, what I've been believing. Probably praying through the experience that he had of Jesus on the road and what does it mean. He's probably prayed for, God, would you, I need my vision back. Will you give me my vision back? That would be great. And I'm sure he's worshiping God. That would be a good thing, too. You can imagine him uh, praising God and, and worshiping him. But you may think at the same time, 
why is it such a big deal that he's praying? Uh, He is a Pharisee, after all, and he has prayed before. Why is that such a big deal? It's a big deal because I think it's one thing to say your prayers. It's another thing to pray. It's one thing to say your prayers, but I think it's another thing to actually pray. We've all seen those shows or those situations or movies where uh, somebody's in a real tight jam, things are really difficult, things are really stressful, and they pray. They say, God, if you get me out of this, I'll never do this again. God, if you fix this, then this will happen. What are they doing? They're bargaining. They're saying, God, they're trying to to, to work a deal with, with God. There's a difference between that kind of praying and talking to your lovingly, loving Heavenly Father. It's another thing to come to him as, your, as his son or as his daughter. It's another thing to come to him and, and pray to him knowing that he died for you. It's another thing to come to him in humility and openness. God, I, I've done these things. And for God to say, I forgive you. I love you. I accept you. I'm for you. I'm with you. It's a totally different relationship that's going on. The second thing, the last thing that we'll talk about and then we'll close in prayer is he has a new relationship with others. He has a new relationship with others. Verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul, and he said, Brother Saul. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where somebody has prayed for you and they've laid hands on you at the same time. There's nothing magical that's, that's coming out of from one body to the other. But what does it do? It communicates what? Love. Acceptance. It says, I'm with you. Uh, I care for you. I love you. I, I, I want this to change. I want things to be better for you. So you lay your hands on them. And Ananias also calls him brother. Brother Saul. Taking the weight of, of what it would look like for him to say that. Because up in verse 13, uh, God is, is talking to Ananias and he's saying, hey, I want you to go see Saul because he's here in town and because of what's going down. And Ananias says this in verse 13, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who, come, who, all who call on your name. In other words, what's Ananias saying? God, he may have an arrest warrant for me. He may be trying to take my family. He may be trying to to, to take apart this church and the people that I know. God says, go. And why do you think Ananias went? Well, yes, he's being obedient and there's a vision. But more than that, he got the gospel. He knew that it didn't matter what you did yesterday, the day before. It didn't matter who you were. That God's grace was there and it's real and not only does it draw you into a new relationship with God himself but it draws you into a new relationship with his community with his people and so Ananias was able to go to him and say brother Saul this man that once was tearing down the church he's able to go to him and say welcome to the church welcome to this church community did you catch what Jesus said to uh, Paul on the road He says, you are persecuting me. And what that says to us is when you persecute persecute the church, it's like you're persecuting Christ. And it's a reminder that you are brought into a body. 
Conversion is not saying, you know what, believe in Jesus uh, and pray and read your Bible on your own that you've got this one-on-one relationship. Yes, but it's more than that. You're brought into a relationship with a community, with a body, with other believers to identify with, to love, to serve, to care for, to see God work, to encourage with. And so when we think about conversion, it's, conversion is not about, I just need to believe enough and get over any kind of doubts I have. The essence of conversion is, is believing in the sense of resting. God, this is what you've done for me. This is what you've given to me. And I want to live my life in response to those things. Would you pray with me? Father God, we uh, need you. Some of us need to to be confirmed uh, that you have converted us, that you have changed us. Some of us need to be refreshed in the fact that you are real and you do save sinners, that you do work in people who are far away from you. You're that big, you're that glorious. Some of us need to be reminded of how much we need others. We need the body, need to be a part of the church. Some of us need to be reminded of what it is to be your son or daughter and know the difference between saying our prayers and actually praying and encountering you. Regardless, would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you draw us closer to yourself? We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.